difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias and Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky is here, but silently producing us. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're huddling together in the dark to talk about two films about paranoia, fragile alliances, and threats lurking just outside our walls. Tasha, can I trust you to tell us about the movies we'll be talking about this week? Well, I mean, I know I'm human, and if you were both against me, you'd just attack me right now. So I guess I've got nothing to lose. Should we all start cooking our own food, though, just to be safe? Yeah, that's probably for the best, especially if we're being targeted by an unfrozen visitor from another world with the ability to assume the form of any living creature, as in the 1982 film John Carpenter's The Thing, a film based on the John W. Campbell short novel Who Goes There, which was also adapted into the genre-defining science fiction thriller The Thing from Another World, released in 1951. Are you saying there might be some other threat? Well, we could also be among the last survivors of a highly infectious plague with a 100% fatality rate and living in a world where no one can be trusted, as in Trey Edward Schultz's new post-apocalyptic drama, It Comes at Night. Those both sound pretty bleak. So let's try to fight off the monster first with today's episode, in which we take our second trip into the John Carpenter filmography, a chilly excursion into a remote Antarctic outpost where tempers run high and nobody seems to like each other very much, even before Monster comes into the mix. Then, later in the week, we'll talk about It Comes at Night, a film that was influenced by Carpenter's The Thing. We'll be right back to start taking blood samples after the break. One hundred thousand years ago... It found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica. It could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen. But not to death. And man... It isn't Benning! ...is the warmest place to hide. John Carpenter's The Thing opens with a dog's desperate run for its life across a snowy Antarctic landscape, pursued by a pair of seemingly insane Norwegian scientists. We'll learn their backstory over the course of the film, or bits of it, But it's the dog's place of refuge, an American scientific base, that serves as the film's primary setting. And it's a place where a fair amount of drama seems to have transpired even before the film began. None of the residents, all men, seem to like each other much. Boredom and isolation have taken hold, everyone seems on edge, and what might have passed for good nature ribbing under different circumstances now sounds downright hostile. It's a tough situation that started to take on a destructive coloring. When we first meet our hero, a helicopter pilot named McReady, played by Kurt Russell, he's dumping some liquor into a computer chess machine and calling it a rude name. In the process, ridding the station of the closest thing it has to a female presence. No one talks of home or the lives they left behind. They seem alienated and doomed to stay that way even before a shape-shifting alien starts picking them off. The notion of an alien that could take the form of any living being could work in other settings. See any number of versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But this lonely last outpost gives it an extra charge. 
These are men who have already pushed themselves to humanity's fringes, discovering they still have something to lose, and fighting back the best they can against an enemy who could be anywhere or anyone. It's also one that mostly stays hidden. Much of the drama in the thing comes from the seeming impossibility of sorting friend from foe. Who do you trust when the only person you know to be human is yourself? When the enemy is forced to make itself apparent, all that tension erupts in the presence of a gory, otherworldly creature whose body takes on forms that mix terrestrial creatures with a highly adaptive biology. A dog's head breaks open in a flower-like eruption. A human head sprouts spider-like legs and begins to crawl along the floor, its eyes empty and its mouth agape because whatever has taken it over doesn't really need them. The film's effects by Rob Botton, with some assistance from Stan Winston, sometimes look like twisted, psychedelic Freudian parodies of the bodies we know. Of all the aliens I've met in my movie travels, none has matched its power to disturb. Even now, many viewings in, I find my mind wanting to reject what I'm seeing because it just doesn't make sense. The film, on the other hand, makes perfect sense, creating an unforgiving environment, introducing a destructive addition, and following it through to the awful end. A final scene that might be two men in the moments after sacrificing themselves to save the world, or it might show an invasive enemy waiting for his last remaining opponent to freeze to death. It's a fitting end for a film about the horrors of the unknowable, leaving us waiting in the dark for an answer we'll never learn. I'm going to hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. The storm's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours. We still have nothing to go on. One other thing. I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody... Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. So, just broadly speaking, what did everyone think of John Carpenter's The Thing? Was this anyone's first time watching it? Or, oh, no. Or, yeah, no. Oh, it's, God, it's, no. It's, a movie I've, it's probably one of the movies I've seen the most over the years. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and it never gets old. The creature effects just have such a shocking power. No matter how many times I see this movie, mm-hmm. I, I always end up shocked by the effects. But even more than that, I've just – I've seen so many what I've always called cast attrition thrillers that are all about the <laughs> – the, you start off with a group and they're winnowed down one by one. And one of the problems I just consistently have with them is – is you start off not really knowing who any of those people are. And by the end, you often don't really care who any of them are. Sometimes only a few of them get any sort of characterization whatsoever. There's often either an expo dump up front or a rush to get to the action. And the the pacing of this movie is so perfect. The introduction of the characters is so perfect. The way you're thrown into the middle of a situation without knowing what's going on and the way it builds up paranoia from the beginning is so perfect. Every time I see this movie, it just it delights me all over again. I like it as well. <laughs> um, no, I, I like it as well. And I, I think your keynote really tapped into the appeal of those effects about your mind wanting to reject what you're seeing because it doesn't make sense. That's a really good way of putting it. Because I think given the malleability of this thing, it is called The Thing. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that John Carpenter telling... Rob Botton and Stan Winston or whoever. Yeah, Winston is uncredited. He worked on the dog effect. Okay, okay. So, yeah. so, so, Botton got overworked apparently. I imagine so. So, <laughs> but but just the just that the freedom just just go hog wild to take some aspect of the person or animal who's been possessed and and include it in this melange of horrifying, deadly stuff. 
it's just great and it's surprising every form it takes so as a fan of horror as a fan of of gore <laughs> occasionally of as a fan of practical effects i mean it doesn't get any better than that also kind of just a fan of kurt russell i mean kurt mm-hmm. russell in general during this era did a lot of kind of uh hip shot loudmouth, freewheel and rolls and you get touches of that here but you also get him just re- like really exploring kind of the depth of his humanity and his ability to play pain and fear and drama and determination like this movie more than a lot of the movies of the era really brings him across in a in a fun and interesting way but also kind of shows you his acting chops in a way that a lot of Kurt Russell movies don't. Not to say that, you know, movies like Big Trouble in Little China portray him as a bad actor in any way. It's just there's a lot of nuance here um, that maybe isn't in his, like, his bigger, more colorful, like, Han solo roles. He knows. I mean, John Carpenter really, they had such a great working relationship, and he really understands Russell's range. I mean, that, that Big Trouble in Little China performance is... Uh, Kurt Russell as a motormouth, you know, as a a braggart, um, somebody who's putting on a certain amount of John Wayne swagger, but doing it in a hilariously cartoonish way. Uh, and then you look, this isn't a John Carpenter film. You look at a movie like Soldier, where he doesn't ha- even have a hundred words of dialogue and he can carry that movie too. And this is performances maybe somewhere between those two on the Kurt Russell spectrum. But, I but think he's a, he's a character who doesn't talk any more than he has to, though. Yeah, right. I think he preferred not to talk to any of these guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, and all of them are just I, one of the things I love about the movie is just how all of them are drinking. So heavily <laughs> and so often, there's just an open bottle everywhere in sight. Well, what and else just, do you do? It's so unremarked on, like it's just assumed that like the pilot's on duty. He's going to be going up in a in like a half an hour. Of course, he's got a bottle of J and B that he's like swigging from liberally. <laughs> he goes out to face a crisis, and he's still clutching that bottle. Somebody gets shot, he just hands him the bottle. <laughs> to clarify, some of them do get stoned, though. I mean, that, that, that is true. <laughs> is it is it stated? how long they've been there i don't think so Has that no. ever said i don't believe i think so. we just assume it's been a while it's been it's, I, I would hope i would it's hope lived it's, been in, a while. it's a lived in space uh with people who, who don't like each other right oh, the details too like the oh i've already seen this episode of let's make a deal why don't i just pop in this pornography I'll, we'll watch it together <laughs> while smoking up but we're yeah. we're kind of tearing ahead what did what did you think what are your overall oh, thoughts I, mean, I, I love this film and, and i, I it improved to me i'd like to see it on the big screen at some point because it, it's improved to me in every different format i've seen it mm-hmm. and I, I think the first time i saw it even i was really already snobby about watching movies on tv and certainly i didn't want to start anything that had already started but i think i came across this movie like one third of the way through on broadcast television i still could not look away the first time and then seeing the the uncut version and then finally you know, I think it was on Blu-ray the first time I ever noticed that, that Doc has a pierced nose, which seems such an interesting <laughs> little character trait for this uh, older man to have a, a pierced nose. You, you know that there's a sort of a Wages of Fear style movie laying out how all these guys ended up there that just waiting, begging to be made. <laughs> you know, uh, they must have interesting backstories. Well, one thing that Carpenter always did was shoot in cinemascopes, mm-hmm. shoot widescreen and, and use uh, every corner of the frame. Well, so I think like you, I encountered the film on VHS at first uh, yes. and uh, panned and scanned and panned and scanned. And uh, and then, yeah, I think just have progressively seen better and better versions of it. I had a version on a DVD that was sitting in my file cabinet, but I just got sent like a few months ago I, the new the new Blu-ray version. So I, have, I keep upgrading and still haven't seen it on the big screen yet, though. Yeah, someday. And the more you upgrade, the more you see the 
colors in this film, I think. That's something I I perpetually forget about this movie that really surprises me every time I see it. Because you think of a movie set in Antarctica among men who are, you know, wearing drab clothing all the time. And you think, well, I'm going to see a lot of white and a lot of gray. And there's so much blue in this film. And then he does some really impressive things with the contrast with red, particularly with shooting scenes by the light of flares and then just all the blood. So much blood, blood <laughs> everywhere. Uh, but the the colors just really pop off the screen sharply. Yeah, and and then again, you know, it's a movie that's largely set in the same enclosed space. But you know, it's another one. I mean, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the second half of the podcast as well. But you feel like you know every inch of it, and it's used really well. And the sort of the steady cam shots down the hallway, and and, and beautiful use of that. I mean, technically, I think it's as good a movie as he as he made. He had real studio money behind him for the first time, and you know it, it's all up there. It, you know, it's, it's a remarkable movie. And and one, I guess one thing we should talk about is how we saying this now in 2017 is not remarkable at all. But this film was not liked at all when it came out. It got <laughs> it got really scathing reviews. Audiences rejected it. Mm. It was it was the eighth highest grossing film the weekend it opened, which was the same weekend that Blade Runner opened, which people weren't that into the first time around either. It, uh, it's a great summer for, for genre films, but also films that didn't really get their due until a few years later. Do you have any theories as to why that is? I mean, I think that it came out in an era where creature features were disreputable, where the idea of a movie that was this based around practical gore effects meant it was something for the pages of Fangoria mm-hmm. and not much else. You know, this this kind of thing couldn't be considered art. And I think that we're in an era now where horror is much more respected and much more more examined for the subtext for what it's doing with psychology. The psychology of this movie is amazing. But if you go into it and you're you basically just see a bunch of men killing each other over whether uh, an explosive dog is going to get them first, you know, if you're not looking at it on any deeper level, I can see rejecting it. But also the ending is a downer in an era where studios usually did not want films to end on a down note at all. I mean, this movie has a lot in common with Alien, including those the steady cam shots you're talking about exploring the space. I would love to know whether those were inspired by the very similar shots in Ridley Scott's Alien. But even Alien let somebody, you know, get away alive and cheerful. I think this movie came out in an era where downer endings were bad and ambiguous uh, endings were just not done. The ending is, is best case scenario, our heroes die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And um, I kind of like how that decision is kind of made on the fly or that realization is made on the fly. It's like, okay, we're not going to live. Right. <laughs> what do we do now? What do we do to kind of uh, better humanity by uh, the way in which we die? Which is a great way to end a movie and maybe maybe it turned people off. I mean, it almost sounds like they didn't have a chance to really get into it. It came in eighth of the box office. Mm-hmm. But I think it's always been the case with genre films. I mean, we may, maybe we are a little bit smarter than we used to be about you know, appreciating genre material when it comes out. But um, more often than not, that's that's never been the case. Carpenter's been haunted by it his whole career. He's put out many fine movies that have been disparaged when they when they come out and then people catch up with it later. That's a that's kind of a the curse of being a genre a director. And something like the thing is just it's pretty extreme. I mean, I, you know, it's pushing a lot of boundaries and it's a bleak uh, movie though I think it's so entertaining and I still don't know why people didn't have a good time with it but I don't know I I, just, I think that's just par for the course for genre films uh, but it is nice it was nice to see what somebody like John Carpenter could do with studio resources which he wasn't used to having he was used to taking um, 
an independent film budget and making the most out of it, doing great things with it, with like Assault on Precinct 13 and, and Halloween. But to see him really given the resources to do something spectacular, he he delivers. You know, uh, we need a term, given how much you hate dated, uh, we need a term for reverse dated, Mm -hmm. you know, for things that didn't play well in their time and that fit perfectly now. And one of the things here is that that Carpenter score, that thing that he does with the synthesizers that... that But he doesn't. No, it's not him. Yeah, this is... This is awesome. Ennio Morricone did the score to this, but it's basically him doing... It's him doing doing Carpenter, and it's it's got that, like, signature Carpenter sound to Mm -hmm. it. And, I mean, I remember seeing Carpenter films in the era and just always thinking that the synthesizer sound sounded like very fakey, very, very cheap and artificial. And now, I mean, it's become such a signature of his films and such a soundtrack to so many like movies that we that we love that we grew up with watching over and over again that it has kind of a quality of being quaint but also it it doesn't sound artificial anymore because we've been li- listening to synth music for decades sure. it doesn't sound like it did back in that day at all anymore i don't know what uh, contraposito dated is exactly but this just seems like something that it's it's anti-dated it's aged well yeah but we need a word that you can reject yeah okay well let's work on that so it, it- it almost sounds like a joke to talk about the role of women in this film, which has no women in it beyond the voice of the computer chess thing. But I think there's a, there's something here. I mean, all these men who have chosen to live apart from women and this, this creature that takes on these fairly Freudian shapes, uh, the, it, it's an, another sort of unsettling element to, the, to this film. Hmm. Yes, I was I was going to stick with my standard as cigar is just a cigar sometimes. Yeah, too, but, I don't know. But, uh, but I, I, did, was, I never really thought about it that way until you brought up the, the question. Maybe I should have. Do you, I should I have? I mean, I certainly didn't think about the Freudian aspects. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that much like Glengarry Glenn Ross, this is a film that is better for not having women in it Mm -hmm. because – well, for one thing, and I suspect that when they – they made it, it wasn't so much a question of, for the Freudian aspect of it, as it was just very rare for women to be an Antarctic scientist. Sure. Like, I, I looked into it, and even back in 2001, fewer than 10% of the scientists in the Antarctic were, were female. So back in the 80s, it just might not have been done. It might have been sticking women into that situation might have seemed very artificial at the time. But for me, what we get out of having a, an all-man troop here is just we we don't have to throw sexual tension on top of all of it. And you have, you know, a group of men that are this like hard drinking and hard boozing and like rough and ready and you stick, you know, the one or two women that a movie of this time would have had and suddenly it's like Lambert in Aliens with people, you know, making homina homina jokes at her constantly. It just becomes a a source of kind of gr- either gross leering or like the protective instinct that comes out when people are in danger. And I think there's something really pure here, much like with 12 Angry Men. Like that that movie is not about the relationships between men and women. But if you threw women into it, it would in part become that. And here, we don't have to have any of that. It's all about the paranoia and the anger. And it doesn't have to become about who's strong and who's weak and who needs to be protected and who has feelings for who. I think this this movie just comes across as so pure because it's a, a single gender film. So Tasha Robinson calling for fewer roles for women. All right, let's, uh... fewer roles for women, more men everywhere, just all male environments and all things because of purity. Well, 
well, if you're talking about a model for potentially having women in the film, I think maybe you'd look at something like Assault of Precinct 13. Sure. I, I think you're right that the film was effective for all the reasons that you mentioned w- without having women. But I think whatever sort of tensions we'd have in the movie, uh, I think we would expect uh, them to take uh, a form similar to Assault of Precinct 13 because the movie is so similar to Assault of Precinct 13 in, every other, in other aspects as well. I mean, this is him. He, you know, he loves Howard Hawks. He loves you know, Rio Bravo especially. And, you know, having these single location showdown scenarios and um, the thing is just another version of that but it involves being in, in Antarctica and, and, and fighting some sort of strange alien creature. I, I think in some ways it's kind of an inversion of your usual Howard Hawks because instead of you know the, the team banding together to, to you know for a common cause which is so much you know the, the model for so many Howard Hawks movies this is it's kind of a team that can never quite band together in time. The monster is, is sort of designed to make sure they can't band together. Um, it probably would be a more Hawks under under different circumstances, but this antagonist kind of keeps it from happening. That's a good point. So this is a cast filled with colorful supporting characters. Do you do you have a favorite? Uh, it has to be Wilford Brimley for me yeah. as Blair, uh, which is like Wilford Brimley has never been a young man. Has no. there any point? Has there ever been any point in his life where he has not been an elderly man? Someone pointed out, I believe he's about the same age here as Tom Cruise is now. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> he was in his fifties, I believe. Okay, when so he, I guess everything he, kind of got started a little bit on the later side for yeah. for a Wilford, but uh, I just I like that he really just starts paranoid and then goes crazy yes. <laughs> and finally becomes a monster. And I think it's, that's the where it's I'm it, ready to come back in now, and there's the noose hanging in the work. <laughs> oh, it's I so great! The, the noose gets completely uncommented on. Yes, it's hanging there. But he's also the one who first sort of learns the implications of the thing for uh, the rest of humanity. And I think it's just, it's almost as if that that news freaked him out so much he just became the, th- <laughs> the thing or something. But I love that performance. I love him just destroying all of the equipment. I love him living out in that little shack out there. But, but, and you know, uh, speaking of like influences, I mean, that, that seems to be a pretty strong influence on the Hateful Eight, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That, whole, mm-hmm. that whole device of having somebody out in this kind of snowy one-room place that's, that's well, I guess it's an outhouse and hateful eight but it's connected by a rope that's how you right. get how, how you get through a blinding snowstorm is you're you're holding onto the rope and if you lose track of that you're you're done. lost in the snow well and, and a lot of it i think a lot of it's based is inspired by the thing who is who they really say they are and who's mm, not of course I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of that i mean kurt russell i believe is in both films check that on the internet to make that sure that's a good point <laughs> it's possible that somebody has probably brought that up in a hateful eight review yeah. the connections to the thing but how about you, Tasha? You got a favorite? Oh, I'm torn. So I have a little bit of a soft spot for Clark, who is uh, largely growly and mute, but just so clearly cares so much for the dogs. Yeah. Uh, to the point mm-hmm. where, you know, when he finds out that Blair killed the dogs, he goes, he leaps up and goes tearing out of the room. You can just, you can see on his face how much he cares. And sort of the only softness you get out of him is when he's comforting the Malamute at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure it's okay. But uh, for me, the winner is, is really the doctor. Played by Richard Dysart. I, you know, he's so competent in the middle of, of such a terrifying mess, but he's not he's not grim about it. Like that the scene where he cuts open the version of the thing that killed all the dogs and he's like kind of hauling out this horrible flower thing out of the middle of it. And he's just making these noises, but he's still getting it done. Uh and also he just has possibly the best 
horrifying death in the entire film. Yeah, I mean, that is a scene that when I think about this, this film, the first thing is always the flower dog's face exploding. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is always uh, coppers. (laughs) I guess not his death, but his, his mutilation uh, leading very rapidly to his very unpleasant death. Doctor doesn't need hands though, right? To be effective. (laughs) That's that's a huge, huge scare. that gets me Every time, every time we talked about the cat, what was the, the uh, scene where Harry Dean Stanton gets it in uh, alien. I think Mm -hmm. it's it's that level of just like every single time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still want to know why a 50 something year old man has a nose ring in 1982 in the Antarctic. There's a story there. There's Um, there's so much sense of history to them. That first shot of uh, the ensemble where some of them are playing ping pong and some of them are just hanging out in the corners reading. This time around watching that, I just had this moment of, wow, they're all old. They're mm. old and, and out of shape. And I mean, we got a Thing remake uh, just a few years back. And of course, you know, everybody is fairly on the end of the spectrum towards like young and hot because who goes to Antarctica for research except, you know, 24-year-old hard bodies. <laughs> but I, I just I, – I kept looking around the room at these people and thinking how different the casting would look today. And you just – you end up with a room full of character actors who all have so much life on their face. You know, they all look like weathered and like they've had a lot of living. How, how- not to sidetrack too much, but how is that movie? That's one where I just kind of skipped it thinking, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good in terms of uh, remakes. It's um, the same for like like the Poltergeist remake. It's all right. <laughs> I, yeah, I never saw the Poltergeist remake. Uh, put it this way. I saw it. I wrote about it. I remember very little about it. Sure. It had women in it. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember them cheating pretty hard on the, the bleakness of the ending and just cheating pretty hard on a bunch of narrative stuff. It was – I remember it as the kind of thriller where you keep – sort of saying, well, okay, but that doesn't make any sense. One of the things that's fun about the 1982 thing is sort of a feeling that it plays fair. Like you can, in theory, track the progress of the thing from person to person. You can, in theory, like put together a narrative that makes sense. And there's not a lot of, and then somebody appears out of nowhere for no reason because surprise, because screw you, you can't predict that. I, I just, I remember the remake having a lot of that kind of thing. And for a film that's doing what the 1982 film is doing, but with CGI, it's got really terrible monster effects. Mm, That's a shame. Really boring. Yeah. You can't top that. Do we have time to geek out about some stuff? I was going to say personal favorites real quickly. Okay, good. Uh, uh, Keith. Keith David is is always good. I mean, you can't can't beat Keith David, and and it's kind of a pleasure to see him survive to the end. But you know, Donald Moffat's got the the moment of the movie <laughs> for me. The don't want to spend all winter tied to this couch. <laughs> I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, and when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this. Ouch! All right, so yeah, let's geek out. Okay, Scott, what do you, just, what, what do you what got? an opening to this movie. I mean, what an insane, yeah. almost uh, thing to behold this Norwegian helicopter where they're just shooting this dog, and you have no idea why any of this is going on. And then the people who are our heroes also have no idea why, why this is going on. What has possessed these these insane Norwegians to start shooting at this dog? What a great way into the movie that is, uh, just right into the badness. So I love that. And then, of course, the scene you just, just mentioned, uh, the test, all the, the blood tests. 
the yeah. one, that's one, that's a wonderful way of so crude too. The way of that's heat up a wire, conducted <laughs> heat up a wire. You're cutting people are you know slashing their their uh, hands with a yeah. It's not like like neat little blood samples. They're just no, slash, slashing no, them it's open. Just, and, and now every time that he's he's taking that hot wire over blood, there's just all sorts of you know the the, the drama is so intense. You know, because people have uh, obviously a pretty strong personal investment over whether or not uh, they or their their friends are are the thing. So um, I think that's a wonderful scene. And boy, you talk about ramping up the paranoia when you yourself don't know whether you might be the monster. Like that's just a whole nother level of paranoia. Right. Yeah. You know, because yep. everybody always has that, well, you know, I know I'm safe, but <laughs> but you're not. And then in this case, they don't necessarily know. Yeah, there's a ton to geek out about in this movie. For me, it's uh, that first visit to the Norwegians camp where they're just they're looking at the remnants of a previous movie, essentially, you know, the corpse with the streamers of frozen blood running out of it, uh, the hideous twisted thing in the fire pit, the fact that the entire place is burned down or smashed or wrecked and they have no idea what happened and they're trying to piece it together from no information is such a terrific tension builder you know from the beginning okay it happened there it's going to happen here we just don't know how it's going to happen and it's just it's the greatest way to set up a, a really terrifying claustrophobic thriller we should probably do a tip of the hat to screenwriter bill lancaster uh Bert lancaster's son oh. who wrote this and was working on a version of firestarter for john carpenter to direct and then when this flopped we didn't get that we got the Fairly mediocre fair starter that we actually got. Uh, studio people, just look at the look at the movie. Like the movie's amazing. <laughs> like don't, don't don't pay attention to anything else. The guy can make a movie. Because I, I would have loved to have seen what uh, John Cooper would have done with Firestarter. But. Is it possible that oh, another reason that the movie wasn't popular is because, Kurt, I mean, Kurt Russell isn't, he's the hero, he's the protagonist, but he's not much of a hero. Right. Like, I think about him in this film, and I think about him cowering in the shed, like, clutching his uh, dynamite and threatening to kill everybody, you know, <laughs> with, with ice crystals in his beard and just... The terrified look on his face. Kurt Russell, I've talked about this. I think I talked about this in an old Dissolve podcast. But he just – he gives really good soulful terror. And I think about him so often in Escape from New York and how he carries through that entire film with just this pained look on his face of – I don't want to be here. I didn't want to be forced into this. I don't want to be stuck in this situation. I don't want to be being tortured right now. He's just, he has the most pained eyes of any heroic actor of his era. And it's just, it's amazing how often he ends up in these roles of, you know, being cornered and sad and hurt and scared. But it's not exactly, you know, a two-fisted tale of bravado as a, a heroism tale goes. Could that have anything to do with it? Who's who's to say? I, I think a lot of people blame the fact that E.T. was out two weeks before. <laughs> okay, uh, so maybe it's a different kind of alien uh, landing on the planet uh, maybe that people were, were into at the time. Yeah, you said it came in eighth in its uh, weekend. What came in first? I'm assuming E.T. I can do some quick research while you're talking about something else uh, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 well, if we're going to have a pause to geek about the effects some more. One of the things that always gets me is the flailing. There's there's so much uh, <laughs> tentacly flailing in this film. Yeah, that moment uh, after Norris's stomach falls in during the the, res- the attempted resuscitation scene, uh, the camera pulls back and just focuses on his body, and these like little cilia tentacles start flailing inside it inside of him, and I cannot for the life of me figure out how they did that. 
Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things in here. I don't. I'm not quite sure how they did. I, and some of, some of you can kind of figure it out, but other ones just kind of you know the the, the tongues, what the stuff they did with tongues. You know, mm. it's it's rough. That's why. That's such a big reason why I did see the remake. Was just those effects there. You can't try to redo them. You certainly can't redo them in, in with CGI. That's that's appalling. It's an appalling idea. I, I mean, I just watching it. I remember sort of feeling like, oh, well, they knew that they couldn't reproduce this on the level that it was done. So uh, I guess they just didn't try. Not they didn't try to copy the facts. They just didn't try, period. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could say that, I guess Mary Elizabeth Winstead went on to do a a better version of a remake of the thing with 10 Cloverfield Lane, right? Yeah, kind of. Monster? Under, uh, yeah, underground, I mean, monster, isolated, paranoia. So. You don't know who your enemies yeah, are. But... Come on, that's good. That's good. But it's good, not a big job, ensemble. Ah, come on. <laughs> no, it's not, it doesn't tick every box. I'm just saying it's pretty. It's pretty good. It's you know she's kind of doing you know the thing thing thing. The thing thing thing. <laughs> well, I think maybe they threw in the extra th- <laughs> ten Cloverfield things. The, the extra the extra thing is a typo. Per box office mojo, the thing made three point one million for eighth place that weekend. Uh, it's ET, like three hundred million in eighties dollars. Well, ET made thirty. Thirteen point seven million in its uh, third week of release, so <laughs> it may have been eating up some of the box office mm. that weekend. Like yeah. like so no, like so many Reese's nope, pieces, pieces. Were there three more films that came out that weekend that involved aliens? Was it just like the smorgasbord of alien stories that it sounds like? You could go see Blade Runner. You know, actually, I mean, you could see Blade Runner. You can see Star Trek Two. Oh, well, I'd seen um, those two. Yeah, exactly. Porter, so, Portergeist is a slightly different genre, but still. That's all at the same time. Wow. All at the same time. This it's is quite the week yeah. for science was fiction. This the, was this the summer? Oh, this is summer 82. I mean, summer, it's just yeah. insane. I mean, I mean, lower on the list is, is Conan the Barbarian had been out for a few weeks at that point. Still? And, yeah. You can have a good time with Conan the Barbarian. Exactly. So, I, yeah, I don't know why we're messing around with endings You could make and out subtext. during Conan's. <laughs> <laughs> during Conan's big uh, makeout scene, just so you feel like you, you are Conan being presented know. with a slave. I just think that's what she did in the 80s. She just made out during all this stuff. Well, before we digress further, I think maybe we'll wrap up <laughs> no, discussion wait. of John Carpenter's thing. One reminder, if you enjoyed us talking about this John Carpenter film, episodes 25 and 26 of the podcast focus on Green Room and the film. one of the films that inspired it, Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, and in that case, we talked a lot more about Carpenter as a filmmaker and his history, which we cannibalized ourselves a little bit on this one. Uh, that's why we don't didn't talk nearly as much about that here, uh, because we had already discussed that, and we don't want to repeat ourselves. We'll be right back with listener feedback after a short break. So after politely complaining about a shortage of feedback during our last episode, we've been deluged with responses to our episodes on Paths of Glory and Wonder Woman. And we got more than we could share in their entirety. So what we don't get to tonight, we're going to post on our Facebook page. Uh, Scott, is there one you'd like to share? Uh, Damien writes, and I got to say... this is all for you, Damien. <laughs> all for you. Sure I he, bet Damien has never yeah, heard that. Oh, before. damn it. I'll just. I'll, uh, maybe he hasn't. Maybe he hasn't. I don't know. So, uh, Damien writes Regarding Wonder Woman, you spoke about how World War I was chosen instead of the canonical World War II. It seems to me that the major reason thematically was the message the filmmakers were trying to send regarding the horrors in war being universal. Diana is the perfect character to see the humanity in both sides of the war. Especially in World War One, the Germans were not, quote-unquote, the bad guys in the same way the Nazis in World War Two were. It was a political and territorial war between France and Germany, unlike the moral-slash, quote-unquote, religious imperative that drove World War Two. 
They even tried to emphasize this by having Ares be on the side of the British rather than on the side of the Germans, and after the climax, when both sides came together and embraced. Another way of putting this is if Diana had met a German soldier instead of Steve Trevor and had instead been on the other side of the trench before the perfect second-act trench scene, it would have played very similarly. However, I felt that Diana dispatching the Germans en masse as if they were villains undercut this theme, undercut her character, potentially verged on disrespectful to the subject matter of World War One. So that's a twist. I have some thoughts about that, which uh, I really wanted to write about, and there there just was not time. Uh, and I couldn't necessarily figure out how to frame a piece that was just this one specific thought. But I think the choices in Wonder Woman about Wonder Woman killing Germans en masse, as you say, are really interesting. It was something that I observed during the film and that I haven't seen many people write about. But if you notice, when she first goes into battle against the Germans, when she launches her, her big assault in the town, she doesn't kill people. She attacks uh, support beams and knocks people down. She trips people with her lasso. She knocks people into walls. Uh, she hits people in the head. She hits them with the hilt of her sword. Over and over and over, she is seen to be doing expressly non-lethal damage to the point where I said, oh, that's actually really cool. This is a superhero who really expressly does not kill anyone. I wonder what this tiny town is going to do with like 30 knocked out German soldiers when they all wake up. But, you know, that's that is not the hero's problem. And then after the gas attack, uh, she launches into another battle and she just starts mowing people down like they were grass. She starts actually using the blade of her sword as uh, she is just expressly seen to be straight up murdering people. And you can see that she has come to a place of madness, like that that is a, a transformative. The whole gas attack was a transformative thing for her character. And she's lost her way when she's killing all of those people. She's killing them specifically to get to Ares because at that point she sees her mission as more important than human life and she sees mankind as disposable you know she's already told off trevor as just as corrupt as the germans that she's fighting which i think does support your point uh, damien i think that the film is very aware that all men are created equal in this world and it doesn't matter which side they're on it's just that at that point she has reached a point of uh, deciding that all men are disposable as opposed to all men must be saved. And she does come back from that. You know, she she retreats from that position and she kind of comes back to herself by the end of the movie. That's interesting reading. And that, that actually makes me feel a little better because that was one thing that kind of troubled me about the film is I, I, I like my Wonder Woman to be a, a non, non-lethal heroine. And that wasn't necessarily commented on that explicitly in, in the film, that transformation. And, and I, I appreciate your observations to kind of walk you through it. That uh, kind of sets her up to, to go back to that way of, of approaching combat as well. Mm-hmm. As far as the larger uh, note just about choosing World War One, I, I, I do think that that's a really good point. You know, I, I think that it was very expressly, and we talked about this a bit, that it was expressly chosen because the Germans were not big evil the way the Nazis were. I We kind of talked about how World War Two has been overexplored in film and maybe going back to World War One was finding less common ground. But maybe the reason that the Nazis are so overexplored is because they're such big and obvious and symbolic evil and World War One just doesn't have that yeah. quality. I, I think you're right, Damien. And it brings it more and brings it in line even more with Paths of Glory in that respect. We also received some letters from previous correspondents. Tasha, can you read one? Sure. Kiff Vandenhuvel, who admits he might be a touched bias because he was the person who played the role of Detective Mazzuchelli in Batman v Superman, leapt to the defense of that film and man 
man of steel. Um, his letter is quite long, so we're just going to hit a highlight here and we'll post the whole thing online. But Kiff says that the praise for Wonder Woman is getting under his skin because the critical narrative that the DCU has been getting its act together. He writes, I truly love both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, and I believe that Zack Snyder brought so much more social comment, mythos, and nuance to both of these films than most people give fair due to. I would suggest that Batman vs. Superman is Zack Snyder's Akira. Kaneda vs. Tetsuo in a crumbling, tension-filled city, racked with violence, anguish, and search for understanding and meaning, nightmares, death, destruction, and capes. It's a movie about working out the realities of having your city destroyed and putting pieces back together with no box to look at. The parallels of the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki's obliteration and our own horrors in the attacks on New York. I think these ideas are highly subversive for a tentpole franchise comic book film, and I'm refreshed by the presence in the picture. I believe Snyder and company elevated the superhero mythos, and rather than having Batman throw his suit in the trash for the entire second act until his aunt and girlfriend cheer him up and tell him to be who he really is, he keeps it on through his rage and his fever and his nightmares, not unlike Tetsuo, or like the rage that's ripping our country in half right now. Anyway, I bring all this up because of how the Wonder Woman film functions as a counterpoint to these other films, and, I submit, not as simply just another part of the DCU franchise. Wonder Woman confronts that same darkness, perhaps a darkness much darker than anything Batman has seen, and her choosing love is the antidote to the sickness that Batman has struggled in. Her appearance in Batman vs. Superman rings even more powerfully now that Wonder Woman the film exists. Yeah, it did make me go back and look at Batman v Superman as part of a, a bigger um, scheme. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not on board with Zack Snyder. I mean, I think I mean he's a really powerful maker of images, and I think he has some of the iconography that that Kip is referring to here. Is is yeah, I mean he's he's definitely using that, but I just it doesn't feel like he quite knows how to. <sighs> How to handle it? I mean, I don't how know. He, I, how to put images together well, in a non-lugubrious fashion? Well, not even so much that, but I, th- I think he brings in, you know, images and, and, and symbols that, that he doesn't really have the best grasp on, on, on what he's doing with them. I think. I don't know. I, I appreciate the passion in this letter, though. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I also appreciate the passion. And I think that... There are a lot of passionate defenders of both Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. And one of the things that kind of comes up over and over again, I think, when when people are defending it is just the feeling that because these are darker, more adult versions of the characters, that gives the film an inherent value and an inherent weight. And for me, it just it kind of comes down to making characters feel no emotions except rage and pain does not make them more adult. It makes them more limited. And for me, one of the problems with Zack Snyder's takes on these heroes is that they're just such limited individuals to the point where the whole business with Batman saying, oh, I'm not going to kill Superman after all because he's got the same name as my mom, who is the only point of like love and light in my life. That's a really weird connection to make. On the other hand. 35 years from now, there could be a hollow podcast or whatever talking about how <laughs> everyone got it wrong the first time around and no one appreciated uh, Zack Snyder's films, just like we did tonight. And, you know, they're going to pair it with the new movie, Justice League 47. <laughs> Maybe. I think the, the films I love are going to age really well. For, for you, at yeah, least. For, well, I look for, forward for to everyone. seeing what yes. the uh, the rejected movie of today that becomes the thing of 30 years from now is going to be. Yeah, I feel like you know Scott Pilgrim is, is well on its way to being one of those. Are you just saying that to torture me? Scott I think, is never going to love I that think movie. the second oh, yeah, part of our podcast might be one as well. 
Yeah, maybe. Hey, that, that has a segue written all over it. Yeah. So. yeah, now you're stepping all over it. Now I'm stepping over it. Go ahead. All right. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And again, we really appreciate the feedback. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll look at another film about isolation and paranoia. Trey Edward Schultz, It Comes at Night. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcast or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be tied to this couch thinking about movies. <laughs>